Hello, and welcome to Boundless and Bottomless Seas. First real episode here uh, in our first panel of what is likely to be an ever-shifting panel shoot. Although I suspect Jason and I will be on every panel, and since I'm hosting it, I'm probably going to definitely be on every panel. Yeah, but you um, yeah. Yeah, uh, but Jason and I will probably be on all of them, and uh, Sean might be regular, so we'll see. But um, and I'll we'll have everyone introduce themselves to you and what they do in a second. Uh, we are today diving into the mission of this program, which is to read critically, but not entirely biasedly, meaning like we're going to be sympathetic when we can, we're going to be critical when we're supposed to be. We're not going to compromise our own values here, but uh, versions of reading conservative, reactionary, and traditionalist political thought. Um, think something like know your enemy, but with a broader mandate and not just interested in whatever the most popular trend is in the GOP right now. Um, and we decided to start with Dugan, and we did a whole show explore it with Jason and I explored this, but we decided to start with Dugan's fourth political theory because Dugan is a off-quoted, oft-even-used, patriotic socialist use him, political theorist who is not that important in Russia. We just talked about this in episode right. zero 02. But he might be more important elsewhere mm. um, and who is often portrayed as simply an irrationalist. And I do think there's irrationalist elements to his book, books, but that he's not stupid. Despite right. going to Alex Jones, despite sounding like a weird Russian Orthodox crank, he is he is not stupid. He might be a coffee shop fascist, but he's a smart. Or let me rephrase that. He's not a fascist. He, mm. he is a post fascist of some sort. Mm. And we're going to have to like deal with what that means. But um, who I think is, who in some ways, from the standpoint of when he wrote this book in Russia in 2009 and when it got published in America two times, once kind of in an underground form, just published by Mark Shabobda, see episode zero where I talk about who that guy is. And then Mark Shabobda and Mark, Mi Mark Millerman, the American academic, uh, clean this up and publish this with Arcto, uh, with Arctos Press. Arctos Press is a very strange press. It's a press run by an American and a Swedish post uh, former neo-Nazi out of India that publishes all kinds of uh, European new right, alt-right, and post-fascist material. Yeah. Um, but has had influence recently on the American left through patriotic socialism and stuff close to it. Um, and who I think is we'll this? What's their name? Arctos. Arctos Press. Arctos. That's, that's the people who publish the, the readily available version. There is another translation available, um, actually, um, that was put, off by, put out by Dugan's own organization for political theory that came out the same year that was just by Mark Shabobda. I think I sent it to at least one of you. Um, it does not read as clearly as this. Uh, Millerman did a good job of like cleaning this up, probably closer to the Russian. Although Shabobda worked on this translation with Millerman, so you know you've made it 
like similar to Marx and Engels have made it when people start debating and splitting over the various different translations of your text. So obviously Dugan's an important guy because you've got various different translations. Well, and he's a, an important guy that, again, see episode zero, we go into this in detail. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. That when liberals decided to turn him into a boogeyman in 2016 and 2017, it actually led people to profoundly misunderstand him, both in his right. power and what he actually believed. Like, so he's not some Spengali for Putin. Right? Absolutely I mean, not. This no. is what we've gotten from the MSNBC world. Right. He's not. I mean, he w- he was arguably more influential in, in, the, in, in Russia directly between 2011 and 2014. And one of the things that confuses us is I think Eurasianism and multipolarity is popular in Russia, but Dugan's not the only place that comes from. Mm. Right. Um, But let's get into this. We're going to talk about the introduction. We're going to try to get through chapter one today, and we're going to try to do one to two chapters at a time. And we might try to get through chapter two, two, that was on our agenda however i realized in rereading chapter two that it gets in the the whole things about heidegger and that one might take more exposition than we might have time for today because uh i gotta go check my being in time again have you guys read heidegger before i'm uh i'm a virgin you have okay i I am uh very very vaguely familiar but like Honestly, before chapter two, if if we don't get to chapter two, I'd be fine with that because I also will go back and brush up a lot on my Heidegger. There's a Man, Richard Stolen takedown of Heidegger that I think people should read. Actually. I still got my fucking overalls on, guys. I just got home from work. I don't know if I have much Heidegger in me. I've heard being in nothingness might be one of the more difficult texts ever to read, right? Being or in is time. It? Being in being time. In time being sorry. Being in nothing I did I did Sartre. Yeah, I did yeah. Sartre. Being uh, in time. Well, I would actually say yes. I have read Being in Time like five times, and I don't know that I understand it. Hmm. Um, worse than Marx again. Way, way worse than Marx. Um all right. So intro let's talk about the introduction. Um and I'm going to read, you know, people who know my my methodology, I kind of don't love when people go through books on podcasts, but don't actually read any of the book and they just assert what their interpretation of it is. And while I'm OK with that, I sort of think like we should actually talk about what the text says. So there's going to be lots of me quoting the text. Um, well, yeah. And like, you know, going just off of like a very brief kind of summary of the whole chapter. My position is distinct from line by line reading, and I, I I'm aware of that even as even as I'm going through the book. So line by line reading is very valuable to make sure that I actually have a full picture of everything. Yeah. So can we, I we... say too before we start that it's nice to be podcasting with Jason because I am a listener of Regrettable Century. So yeah. thanks for all that you guys have done. You are yes, thank you. The Potterverse contracts even more. Um, <laughs> uh, a former reactionary, a former trot, and a former communizationist, whatever the <laughs> communard, uh, communiza- communization art. I don't communization know. art, yeah. Uh, Isn't it communizer? 
communizer. It's communizer, but with the E-U-R at the end. So it's like communizer. <laughs> it makes it more sophisticated that way. It's so sophisticated. You wouldn't even know how sophisticated it is. Yeah. Um, You'd have to read it in the original French. Uh, come together to talk about fourth political theory. You know, it's going to be interesting. I, I bring that up because um, one of the things that if people listen to our episode zero, that people just will learn about me. I know a lot more about right wing politics than I even let on. So, like, a lot more than I do. <laughs> um, well, it's, not all of us were in it, you know. Right. You were in it. Um, and I, it. I, I, I've been on to Dugan for a long time. Um, my first encounter with Dugan, which I think was even before this book was published, but it's from a book called um, "Against the Modern World: Traditionalism and the Secret." Uh, history of the 20th century which came out in 2004 and then another uh, book it's not about Dugan but it's about the precursor to 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 Duganism which is about Yaquiism are the weird American uh, national fascist national Bolshevik hybrid movement that was led by uh, Francis Parker Yaki called Dreamer of the Day by, by Kevin Coogan and um, I saw the shifts in Dugan's thinking kind of in real time, um, because he was associated with Limonov's National Bolshevik Party and explicitly with, with kinds of fascist and post-fascist thought in the 90s, which he starts to abandon, um, in the early aughts. Uh, and so that's, that's going to be interesting. Keep that a in mind um the other thing about about dugan i think we should read this you will meet sometimes marxist leninists who are also like multipolaristas who are not so secretly duganist mm. right we'll say dugan is an anti-fascist mm. and one of the things i'm going to say is like in the same way that like baudrillard's an anti-marxist mm. um sort of true in that Dugan does have a critique of fascism in both its statist and racialist ideologies, but also like he explicitly comes out of a fascist world, was fascist and will occasionally endorse fascist people uh, explicitly in a limited context. So you have to be careful with that. But all that said, you know, if you want to understand an enemy that, that, can both play the clown and be smart. Dugan's very interesting because mm. reading this book, you realize that like this book can appeal to someone who's been educated in and leftist post-Marxist theory um, very easily. And as I was saying off air, it it ter- it takes a gombin and turns it against you. It takes Heidegger. Well, Heidegger was never on your side anyway. If you're a leftist, but a lot of leftists thought he was, and turns it against you. It takes Foucault and turns it against you. It takes um, Derrida and turns it against you in ways that are hard to argue from that point of view. And he casts some critiques of Marxism that are hard for Marxists to answer in a, yeah, in a very real way. Um, it's uh, as we get into chapter one, you can see the reason why this is a thinker that people 
seem to be forced to grapple with because um, as we'll talk about, he's identifying something, a uh, global um, phenomenon, sociological, intellectual phenomenon, which is, of course, what we would call the end of history, right? He's talking about this transition from the condition of modernity to the condition of post-modernity. And it's a deeply historical argument that he's making, right? He's trying to wipe away, clean the slate of the 20th century and argue that there is something that is superseding that. And once you're on that terrain where you're not talking about you know, ideal forms, you're not going back to Plato and Aristotle, you're not talking about um, ever-present, everlasting moral or political truths, that instead you're historicizing all of us with a particular Marxist ear to listen all of a sudden perk up because he's making, at the end of the day, a a historical, historicizing argument. Yeah, we'll get to where he breaks that, uh, uh, even in the first chapter, but... Um, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, you know, there's a lot of obvious influences that are going to be cited. Then there's not obvious ones, which are actually super popular, but people aren't going to immediately see. I definitely think this book has, you know, that when, when, um, that when Dugan's writing this book, he's also responding to Atlanticist in Russia who are familiar with like Alan Bloom, uh, the closing of the American mind. Um, uh, the class of civilizations books was that guy uh, samuel huntington samuel huntington uh there's definitely francis fukuyama's all over this book yeah um uh and farid zakaria weirdly mm-hmm. is all over this book if you remember in 2007 at the end of the bush administration farid zakaria of all people was talking about how the america in liberalism had to adjust to a multipolar world before um anyone in uh in communist land was using that terminology um right and that's all in the background here so he's definitely he he is one of the things we have to remind ourselves is he's trying to fend off the popularity of the ideas coming out of the new american century um because this book does come out of 2009 but one of the things that if you if you think about that, and it was translated in 2012, um, if you think about that, then it makes this book more disturbing because in some ways it gets some things right that books from the exact same time period don't. Mm-hmm. And that should worry us. And I don't say this like because like I want to point out where I think there's being stuff being snuck in and stuff that I don't think holds water. But let me just read some of this introduction. Um, Liberalism, which has always insisted on de-emphasizing the importance of politics, and we'll get to why it has to do that in a minute, that's in the first chapter, made the decision to abolish politics completely after its triumph. Now, aside from the whole reification fallacy in that, liberalism deciding to do something, there's Mm. a truth to that. Mm. Like, There's a basic truth to that, yeah. We're going to continue to see this fallacy over and over again because one of the things that i saw in chapter one and two is things emerge but there's no real actor behind them right things are constantly emerging things are constantly happening but there's no agency and there's no sort of developmental process which for any of us who like steeped in marxism you're already like huh all right why are these things occurring why are they happening 
But right. those of us who steeped in Marxism do that, but we have to think about like the popularity and and the aughts and kind of still the popularity of stuff like epistemes coming out of Foucault are are enclosed modes of existence coming out of Althusserian Marxist. If you're of those kinds of orientations, you also don't deal with um, the precise relations of production that actually make these things emerge. In fact, you bracket that out as unscientific, weirdly. Um, and, and so if you're of that orientation, I actually don't know how you argue with Dugan. Mm. Because those people also have stuff that seems to just emerge somehow and right. be totalized well, I, like that. I think that those people just don't argue with Dugan because they would just say, oh, he's a fascist and fascists are racist. And so I already know Dugan, he's a racist. I don't need to know anything else. And that's it. Yeah, there's Hitler particles coming off all over him, right? right. There's like this right. sort of... There, <laughs> well, like, the Dugan for, would actually... since, the, since the Second World War, right, this sort of like founding mythos of of the sort of liberal century of like the end of history, really, you have this sense that like fascism is always lurking in the background. It's like this idea, this like er idea that's out there. And if you even engage with it, it all of a sudden will come back and bite you. you that's know? exactly so, right. The, the yeah. thing that, but then there's also this, this tendency in Marxism to say, well, fascism is purely liberal in the first place. It's just liberalism in crisis, which I think is actually not true. It's also um, not helpful. Yeah. It's, it's not, like, not, it's not like true a good shorthand. Helpful. It'd be right. one thing if that led you to doing something that was helpful, but it's just it's it's lazy and it's also not helpful at all. Right. It leads you to anti-fascism, which as we've seen very vividly over the last ten years is a cul-de-sac. It was just anti-fascism is just to, to give urgency to popular frontism. That's all it does. That's right. Um and we can see that it's also very superficial because they didn't really care how many of the fat and like they being the broad anti-fascist coalition, you know, the individual anti-fa groups maybe still do. I'm not saying they don't, but, but uh, the broad democratic party anti-fascist coalition did not say anything when most of uh, the Trumpist policies that were unique to Trump were maintained by Biden. They, they, they well, would right. try to, they tried to at first distance uh, you know, claim that there was more distance between the policies than there were, and when that became undeniable, they just shut up about it entirely. Yeah. Well, right, because the concern about fascism is about fascists. Like, if Trump is there, then it's fascism, and if he's not there, then it's not really. It's kind of like how China is communist, regardless of what they do, because of the fact that they are individually communists. But the point of all of this is the resistance. The right. point is to wed everybody back into the popular front. And to scare people for good and bad reasons. There's very reason, very good reasons to be to be scared. Uh, I, I want to get back into this uh, beginning. Um, and uh, I was going to say, I wonder if Sean knows he's lost, but I think he knows now. Yeah. Um, so. So uh, let's let's talk about this for a second. Um, regardless of the rationale, liberalism did everything possible to ensure the collapse of, pol of politics. And I think I think this is true, although the regardless of the rationale is a, is kind of a 
is kind of doing what Sean was accusing it of doing is like hiding how we got here. Right. Um, at the same time, liberalism itself has changed. Passing from the level of ideas, political programs and declarations to the level of reality, penetrating the very flesh of the sulfur paddock, which fabric which has become suffused with liberalism and in turn has begun to seem like the natural order of things and i think this is true yeah that's entirely like like liberal assumptions are naturalized to the point that i have trouble for people people understanding me when i critique them like when i talk about like hey you can't talk about like technological progress as if it's a unilateral totality moving in one direction like that's a liberal assumption and you can't like even Marxist and people who should theoretically know better. Like there, like I might have issues with Marxist teleology, but Marxist teleology is not that linear right. because of things like analytical Marxism and whatnot. Most people still somehow think that they can believe that and be a Marxist. Right. Yeah. Like um, on the regrettable century, when we talk about like the liberalism of the left, this is what we really mean. It's not like they are individually like they they have a philosophy of liberalism. It's that they're not even aware of the fact that their philosophy takes liberalism as its starting point. Right. And and so like when they read Marx and become Marxist, they still are interpreting the words with liberal assumptions even more than Marx did. Yeah, it's not exactly. even a problem of interpretation. It's a product it's a problem of like social activity. Because yeah. what social activity is there besides glomming on to the left wing? of the possible within capitalist bourgeois society in the 21st century. Well, right? I think, I think right. this is, this is going to become a, a sticky wicket and, and Dugan's a good place for us to kind of process a sticky wicket is how much of this is because of the social reinforcement and how much of this is because of a hermeneutic loop. And then, and I'll talk about what I mean by that. So some of this is like, we have to interpret things with the loop of which we're given but why would we pick up that hermeneutic loop? Well, because it's socially useful. Because we, that's what we're doing. That's how we think we do politics. That's how we think we do social life. Yeah. So we didn't have to, like, we're encouraged to limit ourselves to the hermeneutics that emerge from that. And then we interpret Marx through those hermeneutics. Now, this is not to say there's no liberal no liberal assumptions in Marx. And Dugan's actually, Dugan actually has one of the better understandings of Marxist relationship to liberalism than a lot of Marxists do. It's okay. You can say it. Um, <laughs> and that that's just, well, because Dugan gets that both the Marxism is just anti-liberalism and that Marxism is just liberalism. They are both wrong. Yeah. That, that Marxism is a development out of liberalism, but it is not liberalism. It becomes something else. And that, because of that, um, that that uh, it's actually one of the things that he says that I believe that makes communists uncomfortable. And they're like, well, uh, you know, fascism is just liberalism in crisis or fascism is just corporatism. Although a lot of that's from liberals who don't realize that corporatism there means something different than corpor ruled by corporations. Mm. Um, but... By that definition, the New Deal is fascist, right? Right. Well, actually, by the other def by the actual definition of corporatism, the New Deal is also fascist. Right. Um, fascist either way you cut it. Yeah. 
but one of the things that I want to point out is it's like, well, Dugan also gets that there's a weird relationship between between fascism and communism that doesn't get communism totally off the hook. Right. Um, for the emergence of fascism, like fascism is not communism. It's not even post-communism, but there's ways of thinking which communism made possible coming out of Marx that made fascism possible as a liberal response that again, separates itself out of liberalism becomes something else. And I, I don't see these kinds of conceptual frameworks worked out in this way. I mean, one of the things you can critique him for is he's not really discussing the like the precise relationships and mechanisms that made this possible. The you know like the the actual deep history of this, and that is a fair critique. But I, I think like as a as a conceptual framework, that's a lot more. Uh, advanced than a lot of what we see on the left right now which is marxism is liberalism not marxism is anti-liberalism which is i mean both of those arguments to me are just a waste of fucking time i mean you you would have to go back like a century to find left-wing uh writing which is this specific and also dealing with the way that i don't know ideology even happens so like yeah i mean it's, it's 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 it is a valuable read despite the many criticisms. Right. Well, you know, we can read it uh, as a positive program on the part of Dugan, which we will not do. We refuse to do. But we can also read it as a, like, uh, a full frontal critique of Marxism and liberalism and fascism to the extent too. But I think that the most valuable thing for us to do, of course, is to understand it as like, is to read it as a self-critique of ourselves. Right? Yeah. Just to say like, How is it that some Russian philosopher, some university, some post-Soviet guy has managed to do better with his analysis and his Some post-Soviet coffee house reactionary. That's what um, I'm saying. A guy who who flew a flag with Limonov and fucking pretended to shoot a a, a 50 caliber rifle one one time. How is he doing a better job of, of understanding ideas and social processes, perhaps? than many of our contemporaries say online or on Twitter. Right. Yeah. And I think this is I think this is why even though there's a like I said earlier, there's a whole lot of overstatement of his influence, there is. Um both in Russia and to some degree abroad. Um and he's definitely not fucking Putin dress Putin or whatever. But that that is also sometimes not conversely quite. used to make it impossible to engage with him because there is a shock like the first time I read this text, and I guess it was shortly after it came out in 2013 is when I got a hold of it. Um, I remember being shocked with like agreeing with parts of it, but then also thinking parts of it were batshit insane. And some of the stuff that I thought was batshit insane, then I don't think is insane now. And then there's other stuff that I didn't pick up as dog whistles that I now see. Um, so Look, we'll get into that. I, I'm about to fucking go off right now because I just I, I'm I'm getting worked up right now. But like Dugan, given his life experience, given his interests, given his philosophy, understands something happened in 1991, right? Because he lived through it. I feel like I'm taking fucking crazy pills sometimes when I'm seeing the rhetoric and the program of people online 
who want to imagine that 1991 didn't even fucking happen. Because I feel as though there's so much recycling of like mid 20th century, frankly, Stalinist um, positions on national liberation, on even the like the, the, the basis and existence of the Soviet Union in the 20th century that is like, like, like we didn't learn fucking anything in the last 30 years. And Dugan's actually like, been through this and understands the failure of the Soviet Union in ways that people online or in various different groups who celebrate, say, like the Afghanistan war in the 1980s with the Soviet Union are afraid to even comprehend. Well, I, was, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have learned anything because I come from a, I mean, at this point, it's, it's pretty far back, but I, at one point I hailed from a section of the left that saw the the end of the USSR is like a positive development for socialism. Mm. So, which is to me insane. But. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, for me too, it's it's actually entirely insane. But like, in either case, we didn't learn anything. We either thought it was great, or basically, that didn't happen. Right. And in both cases, that's not true. Yeah, it both it, happened, and it was not good. Right. <laughs> to go off though, to, to a little bit like uh, to go into Marx's great political treatise, the Rumer. Um, people LARPing when things are stalled is actually part of a revolutionary process. This is not making me hopeful for revolution. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying <laughs> is like the, the, we should not be surprised that people are LARPing the mid-20th century because that's the last time they felt like there was action. Mm-hmm. But right now what we see in this action and this LARPing, and it's not just on the left, guys. Like this is the other thing I'm going to point out. Like there's a lot of LARPing on the right, right? Yeah, Bronze Age, um, Berver, Cabana Boy, all these people. Yeah, right. It's like people who want to go. You know, even even when you look at like the like social conservative normie right, not even like Bronze Age pervert kind of people, and uh, normal social democrats. You know what they want? Normal social democrats say they want the New Deal, but what they actually argue for is the 1950s. Mm. Is is early yeah. Fordism. Mm-hmm. And you know what the fucking right wants? They want the social cohesion, without any of the other stuff, um, of early Fordism. And both of those are still LARPing. So yeah. my, my contention today is like, yeah, of course the left is LARPing because almost everybody is. And to not LARP almost requires you to be a fucking crazy weirdo. Which is the point <laughs> of Dugan's first chapter, which is that politics is over. Politics is dead. Politics, we all have this hangover from the 20th century, right? But we're all trying to LARP. We're all trying to relive various different of these three political tendencies that existed at the time when the social basis for it is gone. Right. Well, I mean, I, let's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to. He's I, not I, arguing social basis. He's arguing something else. But Yeah, he's arguing something. Well, he argues like basically. Well, you could fill that in though. A being basis yeah. of social basis, which is interesting. But. Um, let me let me get into this section uh, in the introduction. At the same time, liberalism has a self plange passing from the level of ideas, political programs, declarations to the level of reality, providing the the very flesh and soul of fabric. I read that, but which became suffused with liberalism and in turn began to seem like the natural order of things. Like people have naturalized, atomized individuals to an obscene degree. Uh, and that is what he thinks defines liberalism. That's also what I think defines liberalism. Mm. It's the one thing that's consistent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
this was presented not as a political process, but a natural and organic one. Now, that's something Marx talks about in the formation of ideology. Mm. The political processes start to reify themselves and are fetishized in a way that they present themselves as natural. Like, yeah. that's a Marxist understanding. Hypostasize, right, is the term right. for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as a consequence of such a historical transformation, all other political ideologies passionately feuding with each other during the last century, last century lost their currency. Conservatism, and let's face it, everyone's always talking about how conservatism's tri- you know triumphant. I'm like, yeah, well, people are reacting to the seeming refusal of centrist liberalism to die, and it doesn't seem like centrist liberalism has any movement. But centralist liberalism still seems to fucking out survive all the places that have movement. It's like it's like the far left and the far right and anarchists and whatever are all like have movement, but the movement is circling around a drain. And fifty-two percent of people still vote for Democrats. Right. And then the center is just stasis. And it yeah, it's decaying, it's falling apart. It Wonktopia is becoming a barbarous decalscape. But at the same time, like Despite all the movement, despite like the rebirth of the radical right, the rebirth of Marxism, the rebirth of of social democracy, none of that's mattered at all. The dissident like, right is just a new way to be a Republican, and the Bernie left is just a new way to be a Democrat. Right. And and to be a Republican or to be a Democrat is just a way to be some kind of liberal. Right. Right. Conservatism, fascism, and communism, together with their many variations, lost the battle and triumphant mu- liberalism mutated into a lifestyle. I mean, he's arguing something more radical than most of ourism that lifestyleism isn't just, it's not something that we, it's not a, it's not an individual moral failure. It's impossible not to do. Right. Um, it's a habitus. <laughs> right. Consumerism, individ- this is Dugan, consumerism, individualism, and postmodern manifestation of the fragmented and subpolitical being. Politics became biopolitical. Ouch, mm. for those of you who are in the Foucault. Foucaultians, yeah. Moving f- to the individual and sub-individual level. I've even talked about this uh, with Jason in our episode zero. You see this in the way we move, and I talked about this with a Christian personalist, uh, Jules Asele, who was talking to me about this, but we're like, you see this even in radical critiques of liberalism, where they still talk in a liberal individual atomized framework to the point that they don't even see individuals as people. They definitely see them as persons with relations and kinship structures and everything else. They see them as bodies. Mm, Bodies and spaces. Right. So you are that atomized that you're not that the individual is no longer even seen as an agent. Like you are broken down in your component parts. This is liberalism at an almost subatomic level. Your meat, right? Your, yeah. your meat moving through the world, right? It, it turns out that not only the political ideologies that left the stage, but politics itself and even liberalism in its ideological forms exited. Now, this is interesting. This is where this anti-liberal liberalism that classical liberals c- complain about comes from. Like, because on one sense, they've all naturalized uh, alienation and anonymized bodies to the point that, like, everybody talks this way. And the other sense, they no longer believe in markets and the computer and the and the and the project of liberty or human rights or natural law or any of that. 
So, we don't believe anything at all. Yeah. Right. So, and you have, you have a nihilism that is emergent here, according to Dugan. And like, I don't disagree with him on that. I don't disagree either. Honestly, if you've looked at yeah. the politics since 2016 or so, mm-hmm. right. I mean, there is a deep core of nihilism to the vital centrist project, which we've yeah. all seen, right. It's about power for power's sake. It's about, trying to circle the wagons in order to defend some sort of cosmopolitan uh, bourgeois sense of rules-based international order or whatever. It's not a forward-looking project, project right. right? by any means. So this is why it has become nearly impossible to magic an alternative form of politics. And this is like, the, this. I also think it's interesting that this is, book was written about the same time as capitalist realism. Mm. Um, this book was written in the wake of the 2008 crash. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although 2009, from, right? Yeah. Yeah. This book was published. So he he was writing it like in 2007, 2008. I'm imagining, and book, it was right in the midst of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, a whole political horizon opens up at that moment, and we assume because we're on the left that it opens merely on the left, but as we see from Dugan, it opens up across the political spectrum. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Those who do not agree with liberalism find themselves in a different in a difficult situation. The triumphant enemy has dissolved and disappeared. They are now left struggling against air. Mm. Yeah. Luftmenschen. Yeah. This hurts because I do feel that way. Like we're often described we're destroying structures and and whatever. It's like we can't even talk about who we mean anymore because no one even knows who they are. Like, right. like, ask yourself, who's the fucking bourgeoisie in the United States that's actually politically active other than someone like Koch brothers or some weird uh, revanche section of it? You don't know anyone and neither do I. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I can name, like, four people. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, like, the Koch brother. Like, and, but those and, are just the ones that have gotten caught doing politics. Right. Absolutely. But part of the thing that I've realized is like we've structuralized political, you know, bourgeois power to the point that like uh, Nico Villarreal came on my show and he was like, look, like the bourgeoisie is not even fighting antitrust laws because they're so naturalized now that they don't even care about politics, even when it affects them. And they can't like they don't. And I'm like, that's an insight. That's a disturbing one, because what it means is like bourgeois relations is so structuralized. That we're not fighting people. We are fighting air. Even the bourgeoisie are like cattle, just like in that single file line heading on their way towards oblivion. Yeah, this is what Angle's talking about whenever he refers to the the state at a certain point becomes a national capitalist because individual capitalists are unnecessary for the function of capitalism. This is we live in that time right now. It's scary when your ruling class doesn't even have the pretense to rule or even understand that it itself is a ruling class, right? Like, say what you want about Carnegie and Vanderbilt at all. They knew what they were. They knew what they were and they knew what they were doing. And they had the noblesse oblige to understand that, like, they had some sort of responsibility, personal responsibility to the masses. But nowadays, I I think, I think Bill Gates kind of does, but, uh, yeah, but Bill it's Gates like, is the odd is the odd one out, and he's almost from a different generation than the than the new. Right? Well, yeah, that's true too. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, back to good old Dugan here. 
I just want to get through this because this is some deep stuff. There is this is what Dugan's project really is, and I think people need to grok this. Uh, grok this, but I mean understand it, not necessarily agree with it. The only way out to reject classical political theories, both winners and losers, strain our imagination, seize the reality of a new world, and correctly decipher the challenges of postmodernity and create something new. Okay, so far, I'm actually agreeing with (laughs) them. We'll get to what he thinks that is, and I don't agree with them, but (laughs) something beyond the political battles of the 19th and 20th centuries. Again, Mm -hmm. this is why communization was appealing to me, but ultimately it failed to. Um, That's why communization was appealing to many people. Right. right. What was what was uh, endnotes, but a balance sheet of the 20th century. Right, but one yeah. that actually was committed to doing some of the same things. <laughs> but anyway, we, we, people who want to listen to my critique of endnotes can find it on the uh, Mortal <laughs> Science series. Um, such an approach is an invitation to development of a fourth political theory beyond communism, fascism, and liberalism. As my this friend is- Dave just said at the bar. Anything beyond communism, fascism, and liberalism is just fascism. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that ends up being true, but the question is, why? why? Like, that is yeah. an interesting question to me. Like, any attempt to move out of the cul-de-sac of the 20th century ends up being right-wing, but why is that the case? Yes. I don't have a good answer for why that is the case, because it it's does a seem like... fascinating question. I have a bad answer, and uh-huh. I recognize yeah, it as a please. bad I recognize this as a bad answer, but, like, it's because... Nothing about the 19th and 20th century battles has been resolved. So, like, what fascism is, is the result of that inability to resolve or that um, that lack of resolution. But we right. still live in a, we still live in a world in which communism is still what needs to happen. It's you know, there's there's not a there's no force in which that's there's a repository for it, and that's a, that's a real shame. But I don't think that we're going to get there by trying not to. It's still just liberalism. Or communism. And yeah, by liberalism, I, I mean the different kinds of pro-capitalist politics, whether they call them liberal or fascist or whatever. I think I've been like batting this around for a long time now. I think there's something very, very fundamentally important about the point that you just make, which is like if you see the social conditions across the globe right now and you see um, the struggles that are happening Various like inchoate struggles, you know, movements and non-movements, whatever you want to call it, if you're an endnotes person or you're not, like it feels to me, and I'm biased, of course, as a communist, that like what so many people, so so much of politics is reaching towards is something that was thrown up as a question in the 19th century and was in right. some sort of distorted way resolved for at least half of the world in the 20th century, which is the labor question, which is to say working class uh, self-activity, which is to say communism, when that liquidates itself, when that exits the stage of history, you're left with this giant vacuna, like this giant void and hole at the center of not just bourgeois politics, not just movement politics, not just party politics, but fundamentally at the core of bourgeois society, you're left with this void that leads to all sorts of distortions because of the history of the 20th century that is impossible to actually go beyond without addressing communism, without addressing the big C word. And that is the world we're all in right now. The thing is, we no longer agree on what communism is. And this is why why Jason's answer is both 
may be true, but also a bad answer. Um, yeah. Because if communism is defined as working class political activity, we don't agree on who the working class is. We don't agree that, like, the irony of the 20th century is that what did communism actually do? It liberated the peasantry from being peasants. <laughs> like that's what AA, that's what AAS and national liberation actually existing socialist societies actually did. Mm. Like uh, communization theorists aren't wrong about that. They're wrong that the that the workers like the assertion in in notes four four the history of separation where they say oh, that yeah. the workers movement was never real. That's bullshit. Mm. But like, I mean, it's very obviously bullshit. Right. Well, they like it was they're like it was always a political creation. Ironically, a lot of Marxists actually agree with a lot of like politically that oriented Marxists is actually you know, Marxist Leninist and neo and some neo cows, etc. actually agree with the notes about that. They just state the other the other like like we need to just construct a, mar- a workers movement again since it was always fake as opposed to in notes like we need to find another subject because it was always fake mm-hmm. where my thing is like, well. I think the workers' movement was real, but it stalled or lost or something that we haven't recognized, right? Like, you know, because we do have to answer to the question, what what did we really do with empowering workers? We got rid of the peasantry, and it was mostly the peasantry and correspondence with workers that did it. And now, if you want to use that road to communism, you have to LARP it because there's no peasantry to sign up with unless you're in India or something. Unless you're uh, Twitter ML. Mm -hmm. and you can imagine a peasantry that doesn't exist that's also part of why um, that's part of why people get so hung up on various kind of dead end roads around various cultural questions or culture war questions Mm. because the fundamental antagonism between a a collective kind of mode of production and a private mode of production doesn't have does just does not play out on that field. So like those cultural questions, those those culture war questions will all still exist in some form, regardless of the mode of production. So it's that's it's I'm not I don't want to say it's a distraction because yeah no. there's some there's some important stuff for sure. But no, it's, no, it, it's yeah. not the terrain though. It's just it's a different terrain. Yeah, but the question is, and I think this is very important, and you brought this up before we started recording too, is why are people avoiding the terrain? Why are people obsessed with geopolitics to the detriment of, say, like organizing their workplace to throw out like an easy example? Why is it that we, we broadly are constantly trying to move away from the important questions and towards the easy ones? If you want an easy fucking answer if you want an easy problem it's america supporting ethnic cleansing and the obliteration of fifteen thousand palestinians mostly women and children in the gaza strip right now that's easy the question is why are so many people who are professed as socialists dodging that or no running towards that while dodging the more important and fundamental questions and i think that is maybe part of what dugan is talking about that is a deep politicization of politics right because we're not yeah. offering a political answer we're offering a moral one and calling it a political exactly answer. the moral right. one i mean it's one that i support yes of course we don't want the ethnic cleansing of palestinians 
We, no, we don't like settler colonialism. But yeah. you know what people's answer to settler colonialism is? It isn't like reevaluating the relationships to the land, reevaluating. It's feeling property. bad about yourself because you live in Lodnape land. Right. That's exactly what it is. Right. It's it, it it doesn't actually fix anything. And it's it's social imaginary is actually blood and soil nationalism most of the time. Ironically, usually from the people who are former are from the ethnic groups that are that are former settlers are set our settler groups who people might get mad at former out. You can take that out if you want. Um, but um, but not. You know, but that doesn't actually deal with the fundamental questions at hand because it's still natural. It's still like, for example, takes this idea that we are atomized individuals that could go back to a nation to which we belong as atomized individuals who come from organically this nation as a structure and not a relationship of which we have to that nation. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people would have to have me, they would have to have meaning in their lives that was not given to them by by their uh, participation in this kind of spectacular, you know, to, to give another bad answer, <laughs> this kind of spectacular world in which whether you're opposed to how things are, or you love how things are, or you're indifferent, your way of engaging is the exact same. And in, right. and in every case, your way of engaging is still just, it's like the master's tools and the master's blueprint. And you can, I don't know, you can imagine that at some point you'll build something else. But you're never going to build anything else. Yeah, so to get into what Dugan's actually doing and why this is both damning but also sneaks something in, and this is where the the people are like, "Oh, Dugan's a fascist." Well, they're not they're not right, but they're also not entirely wrong, and this is where. So, we're, I'm just going to read this one thing, and we can go on to chapter one. To move towards the development of a fourth political theory, it is necessary to one we consider the political history of a current of recent centuries from a new position beyond the frameworks and cliches of all ideologies. I don't disagree with that. Two, yeah, I mean, that's fine. <laughs> realize and become aware of the profound structures of global society emerging before our eyes. I think that's we, true. We mm. all we would agree with that. Three, collectively decide for the paradigm of postmodernity. One of the things I love is like the way that we've handled postmodernity is to deny that it was ever a thing right now. And I do admit, as a paradigm, postmodernism was always confused. You mean like many different things. But now it's just like, like, even if you say it's just modernity, I'm like, it's rotten and decadent modernity, Joe. We need to at least put it as something slightly different than early modernity. Yeah. Um, but the, okay, that was the one that people might disagree with now. But they wouldn't have disagreed in 2009. Yeah. Um, uh, learn to oppose not the political idea, program, or strategy, but the object reality, uh, the objective reality of the status quo. Mm. The most social aspect of the apolitical fractured post-society. Post society, I mean, that, that, uh, that could come out of fucking endnotes, yeah, yeah, no, no, 100%. I mean, post society, I've been feeling very much like I live in a post society for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Not to give to Dugan too much credit, but I think that Dugan is like giving voice to a real historical transition, maybe from post modernism in the 70s and 80s. Like post postmodernism, right? Just um, now, okay, and then we'll get to this finally. And finally, to construct an autonomous political model which offers a new way and a project for the world of deadlocks, blind alleys, and endless recycling of the same old things. This is something we would agree with, 
Poe's history, according to Baudrillard, are Fukuyama or whoever. I mean, like, he says mm. Baudrillard, but if it's would be Fukuyama here. This book is dedicated to this very problem as the beginning of development of fourth political theory. Through an overview and re-examination of the first three political theories into the closely related, this is where you learn what Blake is actually on about, to the closely related (laughs) ideologies of national Bolshevism and Eurasianism became very close indeed to a fourth political theory. Close, but not quite. Close, but no cigar. Right. So (laughs) national Bolshevism is is good because it's post-fascism. Um, We're on our way with national Bolshevism. Yeah, national Bolshevism <laughs> is a synthesis of, and I I pointed out that I've even had Maoists tell me that national Bolshevism is a problem in Maoism, uh, in addition to you know its weird German conservative socialist roots in historic in in the German historical school, and there's a bunch of different movements that came to well, national Bolshevism is called multiple times. Maoism is a lot more like objectively national Bolshevist, although it's not explicitly so. But mm. but like all throughout, all of the uh, the under undergirding arguments for national Bolshevism are also entirely within Maoism. They're just yeah. spread out. They're just not concentrated. Like uh, the fa- like you look at the founders of the of the Chinese Communist Party, um, and Mao is not one of them, by the way. For people who don't know, which is. Uh, uh, Chen Du Shu and Li Du uh, Does Hou How How I I'm always fuck up Chinese, but anyway, uh, Li Does How came up with not from Mussolini concurrently with Mussolini separately mm-hmm. with the idea. Well, if if national liberation is so important, and we need and we need class as a subject, and we mean class as something beyond the individual, why not talk about proletarian nations? Mm-hmm. And so that's the it. The proletarian nation of uh, Venezuela right. against the Comprador Guianese right now. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, so national Bolshevism uh, emerges in that context, and, and you know, and there is a way in which both Maoism, for good and ill, Maoism tries to like square the circle with that tendency in classical Marxist-Leninism. Like that's what it's that's its project basically. That's Mao's project um, because Mao doesn't pick up the proletarian nation thesis, but he does. I mean, he kind of does, but again, he doesn't do so explicitly. But they right. do talk about like the three worlds and how the the, the second and third world um, they actually don't have a common interest, but the first and second world do. And that's basically his justification for allying with the U.S. against the USSR because apparently. Right. I don't know. I mean, I I can't understand that. And but also, again, like, the the, the, does, the, yeah. the first world was was the capitalist world, the 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 transatlantic superstate, and Russia, right? Like it was not the second. People always think the second world. Oh, that must have been the USSR. No, it's not. Like who was the second world? Because I always thought it was the Soviet Union. Nope. Who um, was it? The developed, the like middle developing nations, like Sweden. No, more like. No. More like Mexico. Well, because oh. yeah, like Port- like Portugal, or, or probably more like Mexico, because the because right. the, the three worlds thesis only works as a way of saying the colonial world. Oh, actually, like, let me rephrase at, that. In, in the like, post-colonial world, yeah, in the post-colonial world, there is no third world anymore. So it's like quote unquote non-imperialist 
uh, core capitalist countries. Right. So we, here's yeah, we, all, we all read our John Smith, so we know we, that we, 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 uh, <laughs> Well, well, this is my critique. Even though I like a lot of world systems theory, a lot of world systems theory is just trying to, like, use analytic Marxists their way into Maoism. Um, <laughs> but uh, here's what here's when it's when it's posited in 1974. And it's maintained a lot in Latin America, but it's not maintained like like Maoists do not still believe this. Um, Maoists believe some weird shit today. So yeah, but I just want to say like this was not three worlds theory is associated with Limbao, which almost all Maoists, except for the most like except for MIMers, reject. Hmm. Um, so Maoist internationalists may still believe this, but no one else does. Mao, uh, Mao, Mao Zedong thought Maoist Marxism, Leninism, all those people, they don't believe this anymore. But anyway, 1974, here's what Mao said, because I think I misstated it too. Mao believed that the, the, the imperialist world was the United States and the Soviet Union together. Uh, the in-between world was Japan, Europe, and Canada. Hmm, Canada. And the third world was everywhere else. Okay, which is how interesting concept of imperialism, which like you know the Soviet Union and the U.S. They're all the same, and then their then their allies are also the same, but they're in a separate category, right? Mm. But Soviet allies are not the same, except when they work with the Soviet Union, which you treat them as enemies, such as Vietnam and Cuba, which (laughs) right. Um, (laughs) But we we joke. This all sounds really fucking obscure. But these are the sort of pretzels that you need to tie yourself into. Well, this is if where you're going to follow players... multipolarity theory, right? right. So well, who do well, I root for, Venezuela or Guyana? Right. Or, or also, just to think about it historically, this is also how like people who say we should have, we should not, we should avoid Western Marxists condemning of the past for for <laughs> pan communist unity, but also ignore that you know who was shooting each other in real life. <laughs> Asian Marxist Leninists versus other Asian Marxist Leninists in wars in Southeast Asia. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to this extended preview of this new series with Jason and Derek Varn. If you'd like to hear the rest of it, become a patron at any of our three websites. Thanks for listening on the Antifada. Ours is patreon.com slash the Antifada. See you on the other side. And thanks again for listening.